Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. I think people mistakenly think that companies have all the leverage because they know what their range of pay is. They know what the other candidates make, but you have so much more leverage than you think. Hi, my name is Tessa White. For those of you who don't know me, I'm known as the job doctor on social media. Tessa White, author of The Unspoken Truths for Career Success and host of The Job Doctor podcast. She is a 20-year expert in leading human resources functions from within the Fortune 50. I am here to tell you companies expect you to negotiate. If you don't, that's on you. If you want to maximize your pay, you... I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. So I figured the best way for us to start would be to go up the ladder of career progression. So starting at that first rung of the ladder where someone is getting their very first job, what do you think they have to be thinking about that they're not traditionally taught about? I call it stage one, the doers. And this job is interesting because you're rewarded by following what your manager asks you to do. And if you do it faster or better, that's how you get noticed. This is probably the only stage where asking questions, carte blanche, is okay. Because as you get higher and higher, it's not that you shouldn't ask questions, but 
they expect you to learn some things as you go. So for, for people at this stage, I would say, make sure you're asking things like, what is the time off? How much time do I need to give you advance notice before I do it? What training's available to me? And you need to follow up with your manager as well. This is also a stage you come in and think, well, of course, if they ask me to do it, I'm going to do it. But you following up with your manager to say that's done is incredibly important at this stage. Instead of just assuming that they know that you've completed it. Well, they won't assume you've completed it. That's the whole point, is that managers, as they're testing you, don't know your capabilities. And so you can exponentially increase how you're perceived right out of the gate just by saying, this is completed. Now this is completed. What would you like me to do next? Mm. So that's what I would tell people to do as they first step into that career is almost over-communicate during that time. Yes. Are you trying to just understand their communication style, but it's better to over-communicate rather than under-communicate? Is that what you're saying? You're trying to give them proof points that you are a person that can follow through since that's job number one. And so every time you say, I finished this, it's a proof point that I have the capability to do what you've asked. So it's, it's simple. It's simple in that regard, but a lot of people miss that. How do you think at that stage you're differentiating yourself from other people who have been hired at the same level? You go faster or you do it better, basically. I mean, that's the bottom line. And I love the simplicity of this stage. Now, it doesn't mean the job's simple, by the way, because what you will find at this stage is that you'll be surprised that the company's a mess. Every company's a mess and crap runs downhill. So at this stage, these entry-level positions, you're going to find that the company's not nearly as organized as you thought it would be, and you're going to be stuck with trying to fix things that processes that haven't been fixed for a while or things that are broken and nobody's realized. One of the interesting things that when I first went to the law firm, I did an internship after my first year of law school, or actually after my second year of law school, and my mentor at the time told me that whenever I'm assigned a project, I should ask the partner or whoever assigned it to me, how long do you think this will take? How long would this take you? And then how long do you expect it to take me? Because basically what you want to do is make sure that you understand their expectations so that you can meet them or exceed them, right? And a lot of times by asking them that question, it causes the partner or the manager to sit back and think, oh, it would take me probably an hour, but you're new, it's gonna take you two hours. So it at least like almost levels the playing field. That's brilliant, actually. I've never heard that. And that is absolutely brilliant advice to give somebody that's new in a role. I'm going to use that from now on. Yay. (laughs) I thought you were going to say like, I was nervous for a second. I thought you were going to be like, that's awful advice. No, it's fantastic. (laughs) Yes, I always use that. What about even before then you land in that first job? What about the process of applying for that first job that you get? Specifically, help me understand the question on that. You're a fresh college graduate. Mm -hmm. You don't have a job lined up after college graduation. What advice would you give to that fresh college graduate to Ah, find a good job? First of all, I really think it's incredibly important. The first five, six years of your career, you should be experimenting the heck out of things. And so landing not just in the right company, but for the right person, I tell them, find the smartest person you know in the field that you're interested in and work for that person. And as much as I talk about how important pay is, which it is, I think I would trade sometimes a little bit of pay on the front end for the education that you get by working with somebody that's incredibly successful and smart at what they do. Because not only are they connected to other people, which you will then be connected to, but you are going to learn so much more than you would ever learn in a book. Mm. So pick a good company 
pick the right person in that company. And I think that advice can help somebody um, get ahead far better than anything I could tell you about pay negotiation for that first job. Interesting that you use the word smart, because I know, at least at my law firm, there were a lot of very, very smart partners who I would never have wanted to work for. It seems like a lot of the smart people that I was looking at weren't good managers. So would you rather have someone that's very smart to work for or someone that is a good manager? I would rather have, when I say smart, I want somebody who has been really successful in their field. So I'm not just talking about smarts up here, but somebody who's been able to innovate, try new things, really change the industry that they're in. That's the kind of person that I want to work for because they're going to teach me to think in new ways rather than just kind of plot along in the same old way. And if you get a good manager in the process, hallelujah. But my experience is that sometimes the more creative people are not necessarily the best managers. And it's okay. You're going to get bad managers and you're going to get good managers in your career. And I think you learn from both, quite honestly. Yeah. So let's dig into that. I want to find the smartest person to work for. I have offers at two companies. How do I find that smart person to work for? What kind of questions am I asking during the interview process that can help me determine whether I'm going to be paired with a smart person as my boss? First, I'd back up the truck. Before you even get to that point, it's identifying who those people are. And you know what a unicorn is, but a lot of people don't know what that term is. And I would search for really great companies that are unicorns. It shows that they have a tremendous amount of potential or that they have really unique ideas that are going to change the industry. I would back it up to that and be very selective about the companies that I talk to. Mm -hmm. Identify them first, then go after the people. Let's assume we have two that we think are pretty good. The kinds of questions that I would ask are, first of all, tell me about how you've developed somebody. Tell me about a success story you've had. Because I find that just like they give you behavioral interview questions, very rarely do we do that in return. And you can learn so much about a manager's style by understanding what they've done. If they have to struggle on that to find anybody or any success stories, they probably are going to be long on talk and short on action. I call that all hat and no cattle Mm -hmm. in cowboy terms. So you really want to ask some behavioral questions about that. How have you grown somebody? Tell me what success looked like for you in your journey and tell me what you think I can learn from this stage in my journey. We'll give you insights into how they see you. Do they view you as a cog in the the system? Which you can still learn a lot, by the way, if you're that. Or do they view you as somebody who can actually help them and who's willing to let you into their world to learn from them? Mm, Those are really good ones. Is there anything else you'd be asking during that stage? I would end the interview with energy because 90% of the people, and I've listened to thousands of interviews, they'll say, oh, tell me when you're going to make a decision or tell me, uh, you know, would you mind telling me how I stand up against the other candidates? And it's not that there's anything wrong with those questions, but they feel like white noise. So I would ask the question, tell me what knocking it out of the park would look like in three to six months, because what this allows you to do is have them think, get involved with the interview, and when they're involved, they get more committed to you. Listen to what they say, and it gives you one more chance to pivot and say, that is so great you brought that up because I happen to have skill sets in that area and some proof points that I can do that for you. That's how you leave it on a high note, is you have to go after what's in it for them. And so many people end on what's in it for me. Leverage at its core is being able to articulate, I have what you need. 
right? That's a principle yeah. for pay negotiation. And it's also a principle for interviews. And when you can end with, I have what you need, you're already that much further ahead in terms of getting to be a final candidate. Mm, okay, let's role play that. So I'm the manager. You've just asked me that question. I'm looking for a social media manager. So I say, okay, over the next three to six months, what I could really use out of a social media manager is someone who can take accountability for all of my social media platforms, start monitoring the comments, responding to people, and then also be creative and come up with visions for what would be best to post on my social media at what specific times. What do you think about that? I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the skill sets that I have brought to my current job is out of 10 people on the team, I get 60% of the media outreaches to do collaborations. And that tells me that I'm doing something right in that regard. I'm also able to increase the engagement far more than a normal rate would be. I can get a 5% engagement rate. At least that's what I've been able to do the last two jobs I have. Is that something that you think could help you? Yes, that sounds amazing. <laughs> that's so good. So, and then you would end the interview like that. That would be that high note that you're talking about. I think how I would end it to really strengthen it and mm -hmm. give the last punch to it is tie it up with a bow by saying, so what you could expect from me if you hire me is. Because... What you don't want to do in an interview is have them draw the conclusion because there's a chance they'll draw the wrong conclusion. You've made it 80% of the way there. So if you draw the conclusion for them and you've done a little homework on this company, you can really have a powerful ending to say, so here's how I would use these skills in your company. I understand that you're trying to go public in six months. And so I would be able to do X, Y, Z for you. And I think it could shortcut the normal process for getting social media traction. And I think we could probably increase by at least 30% the number of followers you have overtaking a more traditional approach. Beautiful. I can see how you get hired so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one for me because I actually recently went through the interview process. I was hiring for three roles, went through 900 candidates, probably did about 20, 30 in-person interviews. So time-consuming. So time-consuming. It took a month. But the big thing was, as you said, when I asked, hey, do you have any other questions for me? Most of them were very logistical. When would I start? How much, mm -hmm. you know, how often do I get vacation days? Things that you could have asked my assistant probably instead of spending the 20 minutes that we have mm -hmm. to ask those questions, right? Right. And I think probably the people that ended it on the high note and used your techniques, those are the people I hired. <laughs> well, I know they work. I've seen them work. I, I also know that at the end of the interview, one of the things I tell people the formula for success is either come in behind somebody who's, they've never had the job before, somebody that's failed, because you'll look like a hero. There's low-hanging fruit everywhere. It's a lot easier than coming in behind a hero. So being able to end the interview also, uh, or at least during the interview, ask what did you like about the last person that you had? What did they do well? What did they not do well? Gives you the same kind of quality answer that you can pivot and give yourself one more opportunity to, to be able to pitch mm. what you do well. That's interesting. That's so good. Because there's only, honestly, so much you can see from a job description. Right. And that last 10 to 15 minutes that they give you to ask them questions is so important. And then do you do the follow-up letter too, where based on what they responded, send them a follow-up maybe 12 hours later saying, thank you so much for your time, like as outlined. Can you talk us through that process? The key to getting a job is making them believe you. 
So it's not just putting characteristics that you have in front of them. It's making them believe that you have them. So the best follow-ups, I think, are when they can envision you in the job. So send something to say, remember that conversation that we had about X? I found this article that I think you'd like. Or I was thinking about how I might go after that. Here's three things that I think I would want to tackle immediately. Because again, then you put them in this framework of visualizing you in the job. And it's incredibly powerful to have someone visualize you in the job. That's the key. Then they believe you. Mm. When they can visualize it and see the steps you'd be taking, and when you share these personal examples, they believe you. And then I'm sure as we're going to talk about, that gives you a lot more leverage when it does come to negotiating the salary, right? That's right. If they see you in the job, they can visualize you doing the job, then by the time you're a final candidate, it's really hard to start over. It's like dating somebody and and thinking, we're going to get married and seeing that over and over and going, this is the one. And then all of a sudden having the rug pulled out from under you. You know, you want them to be really liking you a lot, salivating over you at that point in time. Because again, that gives you more leverage. For that follow-up letter, do you have a specific recommended time after the interview to send it? I said 12 hours as an example. I don't know if there is a recommendation there. It's not exact, but I think within 12 to 24 hours, you want to get in front of them. And often there are these big gaps or delays. They're interviewing other people. What you don't want to do is say, have you decided yet? Have you decided now? 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 That just will drive them crazy. So I reserve at least a week out if you haven't heard from them, rather than being irritating and saying, have you made a decision yet? Send that second one to say, hi, just following up again. I found this article. I found it really useful. It seemed to really touch on these points that we talked about. And I think that's an a way to stay fresh and current in their mind without bothering them too much. I like that. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura, and I'll also leave the link in the show notes. Let's dig a little more into the interview process. So I feel like we've sufficiently covered what kind of questions to ask when they ask do you have any questions for me? What about before that when they're asking you questions? For example, the most common one that everyone always struggles with is what are your greatest weaknesses? 
Oh, that question. You know, I'm finding that a lot of companies are moving away from that question and saying something still in the same vein, but tell me about a time you've hit up against a barrier or something like that. We answer these questions differently. And if I could, let me give you a framework for it. You want to say, here's the thing that I struggle with. Let it be honest because I can sniff a dishonest answer a mile away. And then once you've said what it is, go into here are the three things, the one, two, three things I've done to help mitigate against that. And here's what you can expect from me as kind of the third closer. People want to see somebody that's real. They really do. They don't expect you to be perfect. And here's what I hear nine out of 10 times. I've done probably, I don't know, thousands of interviews in my time. Well, I'm a perfectionist. I just try and do too much. Have you heard that? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody picks that. They try and take something that's a positive and kind of frame it as a negative. Don't do that. It's so much more powerful to say something like, you know, I've really struggled sometimes with uh, delegating to people. I, I try and take everything in too much. And one of the things I've learned to help me get over that is, and then list the two or three things that you've done to help yourself have confidence that that can mm-hmm. be done. That will help them have confidence, at least, that you're moving in the right direction because the awareness of the problem is what they want to make sure that you have is an awareness of it. Yeah. And a strategy to overcome it. What about at the very beginning of the interview where oftentimes they ask, tell me about yourself? That's an interesting one. And I've played around. I've, I've actually morphed my views on this a little bit. I think you need to have, at, its, at, at your core, I think you have to have something personal to try and share. And a lot of people will go straight to the, straight to the career experience. But connecting with somebody is incredibly important in an interview. So I tell people, it's best if you can think of something unique that they can tag you with. I had a client that uh, was a banjo player, for instance. And I thought bringing that up, that may sound very strange in the beginning when you're trying to get the job and you know you have a very finite amount of time to make uh, an impression. But after, that's what they tag the person with. And you can, you can move from that personal thing into business very easily. So for example, I was a marathon swimmer. I'm a marathon swimmer, and I did that in, in high school, and I loved swimming. And they'll, what, what will they say? Ah, this person's disciplined. You don't mm. have to say I'm disciplined. This person's disciplined. This person has some stamina. So you want to pick things that imply really good things, and then you want to transition into work. And what most people do is a regurgitation of their resume. Very unpowerful. So if I were to say to you, I'm a 25-year HR executive, I've run recruiting and I've run uh, benefits and compensation for a company, I would sound like every other person that was interviewing for that job. You want to help tell a company how you would do the job. What's your secret sauce? So if I said to you instead, well, I've been in HR for 25 years and I help companies who are trying to go really fast or get to a liquidity event put in place the infrastructure that they need so they can go faster. Suddenly, by going niche, I have found my perfect, the perfect company will pick up on that and go gaga over it. But when we stay too broad, we risk a company struggling with how will that person fit in with my challenges here. So I tell people, pick how I do the job differently. What is my secret sauce? And say to yourself, the kind of company that would hire me is. If you can answer that question, then you've got a pretty good answer. And then you pair it with a personal example. So for me, it would be, you know, I'm a, I love to fly fish. I fly fish all over the world. I have never met a body of water I don't want to fish in. 
And that same curiosity that takes me all over the world has also taken me into the workplace. And you'll find that that theme follows through. I love to experiment. I'm a person that likes to try ideas. I always ask the question, why do we do it that way? And see if we can get to another way of doing it. And I'm also the person that you'd hire if you want to go fast or prepare for a merger acquisition for the last three companies I've worked in. That's been my goal, is to help the company speed up so that they can go to market faster. And then I have a value proposition that's interesting to the right company. And so for that initial who are you question, would you say that it's basically like 20% personal about yourself, but then right away 80% is going to be about your professional experience, but more so how you can apply that to their company and what's unique about you, right? Yes, that's right. You want the personal because you need to have the opportunity to connect. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll say, oh my gosh, I'm an avid fly fisher. My uncle fly fishes. And you need to have that connection point. And you can do more of it in the interview and other ways, which we haven't talked about, but that's a good starting point. And then 80% is anything that's not on the resume that I couldn't read. Yeah. Don't regurgitate the resume. They've seen it. Yeah. One more point on that too. I am surprised by the number of people who do not study and stalk the interviewees before the interview. Meaning if you see that they played hockey on their high school team or in their college team, and then you also play hockey, that is absolutely something you should bring up as your personal fact because immediately they're going to connect that, right? Common ground. (laughs) That's right. Because I remember one of the interviews that I did when I was in law school, there was someone who did ballet and had listed that as her hobby on her website or something. And I did ballet too. So immediately we were able to connect on that and I ended up getting the callback for that job. The research is so important. And in fact, my daughter, she's really good at PR. She's very good at securing media placement and she does it by studying what the people care about. And her pitches have nothing to do with that thing or or with the actual product. They have everything to do with, hey, I understand you're going on a vacation. Here's some places you'd want to eat. P.S. Here's this. And the principle holds true in interviews to be able to create that connection point, that one thing they'll remember you because everybody does start to blend in in interviews. They all sound a little bit alike if you've got 10 finalists, they probably have pretty similar experiences, at least on paper. Mm. So that becomes the thing that they go, I I really want to talk to the ballerina again. So now that I feel like we've tackled the actual interview, one of the things you talk about in your book, The Unspoken Truths for Career Success, is how important it is to create this value proposition that'll then help you to negotiate a higher salary. Can you talk about that? Yes. In fact, it doesn't just help negotiate salary. It helps you get yeses to proposals when you're in companies and just more yeses overall to your asks. I think people mistakenly think that companies have all the leverage because they know what their range of pay is. They know what the other candidates make. But you have so much more leverage than you think. And there's good leverage and bad leverage. Good leverage, which is what I want to talk about, is I have what you need. And so when you're able to convey to a company oh, it's interesting, you you know, you're looking for somebody to help you with this new sales channel. And I just happened to have come from a company where I worked that sales channel and helped build it out. I made 120% of quota every year I was there. Is that of interest to you? That's what I would call a very simple example of good leverage. And so leverage, good leverage is comprised of skills that you have that the company needs It's information, and we've talked about doing research on a company before you go in. If you know that a company 
has a liquidity event happening, or if you've listened to their quarterly reports, you will understand pain points and you'll understand areas that they're trying to accelerate and grow. This can be tremendous leverage to you because you can, if you can take what you've learned and then say, this is the way I can help you achieve that thing. For instance, if a company has had a turnover of people are leaving or there's a certain deadline coming up that's really critical to the company and you have the knowledge that they need, that is good leverage that you can use to make more money when you actually uh, ask for what you want. And most people just look at, well, here's what the job pays when I look at information online. That's only part of the equation. The real powerful stuff is is what you can provide and how you help them solve these problems that they have by doing Mm. your research. One of the other things I was thinking about is during this interview process, it's really nice if you have tons of previous experience to be able to point to the things that you've accomplished at X, Y, and Z company. What about if it is your very first job and you really don't have any data behind you to validate that you are perfect for this job? Well, there's a few things I would recommend. If you're, let's talk about college students for a moment. There are things that are of value to a company. One would be a GPA. It's not the end-all, be-all, but it's something you can use as leverage. The second thing would be, what kind of internships did I do and what problems did I solve? And a lot of times students will put what they did or, or, or who they had the internship with, but they don't talk about, I did, I went from this to this. I helped the company solve this problem. It was here before and now it's here. So getting really clear on that would be very important. I would also take the classes that are the senior classes that are very niche and very high level and put those on my resume if they are relevant to the company that you're going to. Mm. I also think if you worked through school, the fact that you can show that you hustle is a very big deal because we have a lot of people who are not very interested in working beyond a 40-hour work weekend. We have many who are not even interested in that. So that becomes a leverage point for students who don't have a lot of experience. So now you've really made it clear that this is your secret sauce. This is how you're going to do the job differently. When is the right time to then enter into the salary negotiations? I get this question every single day. It's a nuanced answer. If you want to maximize your pay, you wait until you are last person standing or close to it if you really want to maximize your pay. That does not mean that when they ask you what are your salary expectations that you say nothing or say, I'd rather not talk about that because I'm getting a lot of calls from CEOs who are so fed up with that approach. I think it's this middle ground. What I would do is preemptive. When you're in an interview, I would take a preemptive approach. I would ask, what is the range of pay for this position? Because I don't want to waste our time. And once they answer, then you can say, oh, that's about right, that it looks like it's a little low, but I still think it's worth talking about, and you can move forward. Establish the range of pay, but try not to get into the specifics. Now, you can't always do that. Sometimes people are going to really say, I want to know what your salary expectation is, and the minute you throw out that number, you've pretty much, you've set set the range of pay. But oftentimes, that pivot of just establishing the range of pay and then saying, can we wait if they push you? Can we wait until later in the process? Because there's so many elements of pay. There's base pay, there's bonus, there's benefits. And I'd really like to spend the time that is deserved for this if it looks like I'm going to be one of your final candidates. I think that's kind of 
the middle ground that would be acceptable to a lot of hiring managers and allow you to keep moving forward without necessarily hurting yourself. Also, a nice thing is as of last year, legally, a lot of companies are required to post their salary ranges. So that's even better for you. If you see that salary range posted, you don't have to ask that in your first interview because it is good to just wait as long as possible to have those conversations. Yes, right. I think 27 and counting states are now now have salary transparency laws, but I'm also in conversations with HR people who are trying to figure out what that means to them. What I'm seeing that's a little bit disturbing, but I understand it having been on the other side. They're creating really large salary ranges yep. so that they have the ultimate flexibility that they can to decide where somebody should fit in that range. So uh, I do anticipate even though those salary transparency laws are there, it's still going to be a little difficult and a little murky to navigate. I've seen that. I've seen like 50000 to 250000 It's like, yes. what? How is that yes. even useful? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's also in response to the fact that companies have had a hard time finding talent. And so where you used to need a college degree, many companies now are saying, I'll take anybody. And so they broaden the range so that they can look at more people that maybe don't have the formal... Uh, education, which I think overall is good news, but Mm -hmm. it does make it difficult to navigate those murky waters of pay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know one of the things I always tell my followers when it comes to salary and finding the right salary is first do a lot of research to understand what your worth in the market is. And then when you do give that, what is your expected salary answer, you have to give a range and it has to seem like also that you've put a lot of research into it. Yes. And in that answer, it shouldn't just be a one word, hey, my salary expectation is $60,000. It needs to be that range, maybe let's say $58,000 to $72,000 or 58000 to $65,000. Mm-hmm. And I believe this is like, I believe this is fair because da, da, da. Can you tell us what the da-da-da should be? (laughs) The da-da-da. The da-da-da. You have to have a story that passes muster for your the hiring manager's manager. So think about it in those terms. It has to be logical, and you have to be able to tie it out. So I tell people when I help them with this, let's look at your benefits. What are you paying out of pocket? Where is it better? Where is it worse? If you're walking away from a bonus, which most people are mid-year, and you're signing up for a new bonus plan, is it prorated? Are you walking away from dollars? These are the kind of arguments that you need to have so that you can go in and say, you know, all in, I need a range of pay from sixty-five dollars to $80,000, but a lot of it's dependent upon how your bonus is structured, what is the rate that you typically have paid the bonus out? Has it been 100%? Has it been 70%? What's the track record been? Do you prorate it? If you're giving up stock options, which is really common, what are you giving up? Are you giving up something certain for something very uncertain? Because then that would be another thing that you would want to negotiate. Education, dollars for training. That would be something else that you might be giving up and can you can build into your negotiation. There's basically 12 things you can negotiate when you're negotiating pay. And so often people simply stop and start with base pay. Severance in the event that something happens. That's something that people really miss. And if you're over, say, $75,000 a year and you walk away from a sure thing or something that feels pretty darn sure to something riskier, you don't know if they're going to consolidate. You don't know if there's somebody's going to come in and buy you. And being able to negotiate for a severance. I was working at United Health Group, and I negotiated a six-month severance for myself. 
because they don't care in the beginning. When you're actually closing the deal, that's money that they probably won't ever have to spend. And so it's an easy ask. And the company actually did end up changing its headquarters. And I got to trigger that six-month severance. And they said, oh, we don't do other agreements outside of our normal. And I was able to produce an offer letter. And it really helped me. But a lot of times we don't think about that on the front end of the process. You mentioned these 12 things that we can negotiate. Is that going to come into play once you kind of find a middle ground on the salary? Or are you doing it at the same time? When is the appropriate time to bring up all of these other things? I would look at the 12 things independently before you negotiate and understand what's important to you because you can't negotiate 12 things. That's, that would not work well. But you can negotiate the top three or four that's important to you. And everybody's different. Some people really want the flexibility and autonomy, and that is number one for them. Other people really care about the pay. Other people want to make sure that they have a really robust bonus plan so that when the company wins, they win, and they win big. So I think it's really important that you understand what it is you're after Mm -hmm. before you go in. I've had some clients who really focused on educational reimbursements. They wanted to finish their master's degree. And that was a huge benefit for them to get that in writing. And whether they were paid $15 an hour, $17 an hour, or, you know, $30,000 or $50,000 wasn't nearly as important as how the company would help them with that. Mm. So you really do have to understand what you're after first. I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free Built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. So let's role play. Let's assume at the very first interview, you did ask the salary range. So you're aware of the salary range. It's $67,000 to Mm $75,000. Okay. And now you've made it to the final stages and the hiring manager asks you again, what are your expectations for salary for this role? First thing I would do going into that, knowing it's coming, is I would have the top two or three things that are important to me. So I will role play what's important to me. We've talked about the range of pay for this being sixty-seven dollars to $78,000 for the role. Uh, the more important question to me is making sure that I have a balanced compensation package that meets some of the real needs that I have. For example, I'm going to be walking away from a bonus that's paid in two months from now. And that bonus is on track to be paid at 100%. That's a $10,000 bonus I'm walking away from. I think that we could either pay that in a sign-on bonus 
but I'd also be open to putting it in the bonus as long as I'm not prorated for the year. So that's one thing that's of grave concern to me. The other is you've asked me to move my family across country. And while I am very excited about this job, and I know I can knock it out of the park, there is some risk involved for me. I would love to negotiate just in the event that something unexpected happens with the company. Layoffs, merger acquisition, pulling apart of the company, not a firing for cause. I have confidence in myself, but I would love to pre-negotiate a severance so that in the event I have to move on for things that are unforeseen, I can land on my feet. So I'd like a four-month severance in this built-in. Given what I have expressed that I can do for the company and the experience I bring, I think I would warrant being paid higher in the range. And I think if we started around um, 70 to 75,000, and then depending on the bonus, I love bonus plans because I know that if I win and I can get results for you, you also win as a company. So I think we need to look at the, at the base bonus mix, knowing that I'm really excited about a bonus plan that can be higher. I would trade that over base pay all day long. Can I hand that back over to you and ask you to think about what would also be a win for you? Amazing. Bravo. <laughs> I'm like smiling <laughs> ear to ear because I'm, I'm so happy. A lot of people give this advice, but what I know my audience wants is give me the script. Like teach me how to, how to communicate what you are telling me to do. And I think that's just so perfect that you've given them the roadmap and the script. That is honestly why I wrote the book because I could not find any other book that has scripts for people and scenarios that are oh so common. And I think it's, it's just practical advice. So somebody doesn't have to read a book and say, how do I apply it? I am telling you how to apply it right now. And I think that's what people are looking for. And having worked in a millennial Gen Z company, which was really 4,000 Gen Z and millennials and about 10 adults, I learned that they think differently and they want the quickest way to get from A to Z. And so learning's different. And that's why I think the scripts are so important. So I was looking in one of your most viral TikTok posts, by the way, if you're not following her, it's Job Dr. Tessa. You featured a screenshot from a hiring manager who said, I just offered a candidate $85,000 for a job that had a budget of $130,000. I offered her that because that's what she asked for. And I personally don't have the bandwidth to give lessons on salary negotiation. So what should that candidate have done to get the $130,000? And do you see any other issues here? Oh, there's so many issues. <laughs> there are so many issues. I see so many issues in this both with the employer side and with the person that's not negotiating. I would say from a company standpoint, people are really ticked off that companies aren't more transparent in the, in the way that they talk about salary. And I would agree with that, quite honestly. I, I've seen what everybody makes behind closed doors and you get what you negotiate. And even though that's still an important principle, there should be some guardrails around it from a company perspective. But from the employee perspective, a lot can be done with research. Mm. I had a candidate that was so gutsy, he actually called on people he found on LinkedIn who had the job before in the same company and asked them what they were making so he knew. <laughs> now, I wouldn't dare do that, but I thought, wow, that's taking the bull by the horns. Um, but research is really important. And then taking the, what you learn about 
what you think is a fair amount of pay and being able to tie it back to specific outcomes and results you've gotten that this company will care about. And that's really all it is. It's, it, I make it sound simple. It's actually pretty hard, but those are the things you have to do to maximize your pay. And that, can you imagine reading that and that's your boss? Oh, <laughs> you know, I was in the head of HR, so I always got to see what the whole company made. Talk about a burden. I would go in and find out that I'd under-negotiated for myself and could see what, where the disparities were. And it drove me absolutely bonkers. In, in part, that's why I'm so adamant to help people with this. Mm-hmm. People often won't negotiate because they think the company will be upset. I am here to tell you, companies expect you to negotiate. If you don't, that's on you because they expect you to do it and they have money to negotiate. They'll tell you if they don't. And even if you get a no to your ask, it's not terrible. All is not lost because a no plants a seed. If you ask for a raise in a company, you get a no. Your manager is thinking about this the next time they give out money. And I promise you, they're thinking, oh, how far can I? I can't push this much farther. They want to raise. So you might as well ask. The first raise that I asked for was I worked for an ophthalmologist in an eye doctor's office. And I thought, I need to make more money. And so I waited until he was the only one there at night, and I asked for a raise, and I got it. I just think he didn't know what else to do because I (laughs) asked it. Everybody was mad at me. The office manager the next day was so mad that I had asked for this, but I learned something really valuable, and that is you don't get a raise unless you ask. Your chances of getting one is 0% Mm. unless you ask. And also having sat on the other side, I know when people get raises, and it's usually the big raises aren't at year end. The big raises are mid-year. And it's because you've separated yourself from everybody else and you can make a good argument. And it's easier to get money then than when you're giving away the whole pot of money at year end and everyone's asking for it. So there are some tricks to getting more of the company money tree. Ooh, okay. So let's dig into that because I know that most people do wait until the end of the year at their annual review to ask for that raise. So you're saying that the best time to do it is actually middle of the cycle. I think the best time to set the argument is the middle of the cycle. You might get it at year end if you set it in the middle of the cycle because companies do set aside a slush fund for these special one-off increases. And so you set the stage, you might get it at year end, but if you don't, here's what's interesting about asking out of cycle. I compiled some research from the companies I've been at and about 80% of those people who ask out of cycle, their increases were more than 5%. Now, this was a few years ago Mm. before 5% was the norm. And most of the increases that were given out of cycle, 80% of them were at least 10%. So think about that for a minute. Think about how long it would take you in an annual cycle to get that versus doing it mid-year. And so let's talk about how to actually go about that conversation, because I think we both know it's not as simple as, hey, give me a raise. No, not at all. (laughs) How should they be approaching that conversation? And then what research data do they need to have to validate that ask? All right, great questions. So I'm going to answer through an example. Now, you're really smart. You do this all day, so this should be a piece of cake for you. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell you how most people ask for a raise. Tell me what's wrong with it. Most people will say, manager, I really need a raise. Jane left, uh, and I've absorbed her job responsibilities. It's been two years since I've received an increase, and I feel like I've really added a lot of value to the team. Okay. 
two big problems that I'm spotting. One, you're saying I, I, I a lot. And whenever you're asking for a raise, the the tone needs to be, what have I provided for you? You, it shouldn't be about me or my personal circumstances. The other thing is you were very vague in the value that you've added. You didn't come to me with specific data on how you have added value. So you've said you've added value, but not the how question. Excellent. So I know you've done this before. So Jane is actually Chris and a real person. Let me tell you how the right argument goes. Manager, since I took over recruiting, I have been able to look at the budget and cut 10% of our budget. At the same time, I've been able to get our recruiters filling positions a lot more frequently. So they've increased their output by 20%. Now, in addition to that, I rolled out the the new program, the employee referral program, that is not like any employee referral program we've ever done. We made every employee a recruiter. And when we hire people that other people know, they stick longer. So our our retention rate of our employees has gone up. That's the numbers-based argument that you would start with. So that's number one. The next thing you would go to is the data that you find on the outside. This is the research that I've done. This is what this role would typically be worth for these kind of results. And then you have to give an ask. And I tell people, always give two options, and this is why. When you put your manager between a yes and a no, you have 50% odds that you're going to get the no. But if you put them between a yes and a yes, it's a simple sales technique. When you put them between a yes and a yes, it's so much easier to get what you want. So put two proposals in front of them, both which make sense and you would be comfortable with. One, in this case for Chris, maybe, you know, I'd like a raise from 70 to 75,000 a year, but I'd also like you to have a component for bonus for me being able to continue to drive this kind of efficiency. Companies love that because they only like to pay for the results they get. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that's a winner. And the other one may be, I'd like to propose uh, another thing that would work is an $80,000 base pay, but I'd like to reevaluate it again in six months because I still think that's low relative to what the market's paying for the role. Let's reevaluate my performance then. Then you put them between a yes and a yes, and you follow up. I cannot believe how many people go to the discomfort of asking for a raise and assume their manager will come back to them with an answer follow up. Give them time to think about it and follow up. What is a sufficient amount of time to give them? I think it's different for everybody, but don't let it go too long because your greatest leverage is after you've just accomplished something great or been able to articulate how you've helped the company. So one of the things that's obvious to me as I'm looking at the job market is we are not where we were 20 years ago, where perhaps you could be loyal to a company for 20 years and continue to get that increase in salary and be very happy with that. Now we're in an environment where purely from the financial perspective, which is how I look at things, you are probably in a much better position if you are moving jobs, let's say every three to four or two to four years. Because if the average salary increase staying at a job is about 3%, the average salary increase for switching jobs is about 15%. So it's clear to me how the numbers add up, right? Right. What are your thoughts on that? Here's what's interesting. I do a lot of research on boomers, X, millennial, Gen Z. And you're right. We've gone from an average, my generation, staying in a job eight plus years to now we're on average 2.2%. Two years, six months, basically, between millennial and Gen Z. And everything has moved from longer-term thinking to shorter-term thinking. So 
I do believe that switching jobs will always be your most effective way to get a big increase, but there is a catch on that. If you do it over and over, it will catch up to you in this way. If you don't work in a company during, I call it, there's red zones and green zones, right? Green zones, flying high, red zones, difficult times in a company. And most people, as soon as they hit a red zone, want to leave. The danger of that is they never have the opportunity to re-engineer, re-envision how a process works, uh, reimagine things, and get really critical training to make them most valuable to a company. And I know that's a little squishy, but if you stay through the red zone and get the promotion, you stay through the honeymoon phase, year and a half or so, and then it gets real, and you get that promotion, I think that is also worth about 10000 minimum on a resume because an employer wants to see that you made it through the hard times and that you were rewarded even for what you did. I mean, definitely as I was reviewing resumes, if someone is at a job for a year or less and that happens two, three times in a row, maybe the first one is understandable. They had they moved or mm-hmm. s- for some reason, but if you see three or more, that is concerning. It, it, it makes you feel as a manager like, okay, what prevents them from leaving me in less than a year? And it takes me three to six months to onboard someone where they're productive and know the system enough to actually help me. That first three to six right. months, I'm spending more time training them than they're actually helping me, right? Do you have a hard number in terms of number of years to stay at the company, or it's really about making sure that people have graduated within these companies? I think you get a couple of, I call them get out of jail free cards, where you can move because you made a bad call and you want to move on, or the perfect dream job came up after you started this other company. But I do think that on the whole, those people that have stayed at least three years in a company, that's a pretty good amount of time to show that you've made it through, you've learned some things and, and been able to move up within a company. I also think, I know we're talking about pay, but there really is an importance in building a resume and skill sets. And as I said, if you always company hop to try and find the green zone or the company that's not restructuring or isn't having the really difficult challenges to work through, you will find yourself at some point not as resilient and not as capable as you need to be to be wholly valuable to somebody else. And it's why I tell people, sometimes stay through something that feels hard. How do you create that line and understand whether you're in a toxic work environment that will never be suitable for you or whether you're just in a challenging time within your work environment? It's a great question. Gen Z in particular, I call them the bye-bye generation. I did a TikTok and I said, is it harder or easier to speak up now? 94% said, and this was tens of thousands of people, said, I would never speak up in my company. I would rather leave than speak up. I found that really interesting. Uh, They would say things like, if I have to write the script for the company, I'm going to leave. But yet you think about relationships and you would never leave a partner if you gave them no information on what was working or not working. You just don't up and leave, I hope, because you have to have communication. And what I find is that uh, the younger we go in generations, the less likely we are to bring up situations that could have potential conflict involved. And yet one of the hallmarks of working through whether it's toxic or whether it's just hard is being able to have a real conversation. I'll go sit in a company when they hire me to come and find out what's wrong and I'll just listen in the hallways and I hear halfway conversations all day long. And 
you've heard them. You go to a meeting and the manager will say, is everybody on board for this idea? And everybody says, yes. And as you walk out, somebody inevitably whispers to somebody else, this is going to fail. I'm so glad my name's not on it. That's one example. Or you're hired in a company where you're promised training and the manager comes to you and says, how are things going? And you say, well, I'm getting there. It's taking a little longer than I thought. And then you go home and tell your partner, it's the worst company I've ever worked for. They've never given me one ounce of training. So I would say a halfway conversation is something you should look at yourself and see if you're doing. You can evaluate whether or not it's a toxic company by, in part, how they respond to your conversations, which means you've got to have a conversation. Elizabeth McCune at Microsoft did some research and learned that if somebody speaks up on 10 or more topics in a given year, they have over 90% job satisfaction, typically. That's the correlation. And it drops 30% if they have only five or more topics they bring up. And what that tells me is, I talk to people all day who say, if I bring it up, my job's in jeopardy. It's, it's not. If you do it the right way, your job may not be in jeopardy. So if you feel overworked, how have you addressed that with your manager? And that's why scripts are important, because mm-hmm. everybody's afraid they'll do it the wrong way. And sometimes they have the right idea, but do it the wrong way. If you have not, here's some things to watch for, a little decoder. If you haven't had an increase of more than 2% for several years in a row, watch out. If you don't have at least two advocates in the company besides your manager, people who could speak and do speak in your regard and try and help you, problem. If you have not changed your title in more than three years, that's a problem. If you have increased your job responsibility, have had a conversation about it the right way, and your pay remains the same, that's a problem. So if one of those things is going on, that may not be a problem. It may just be a thing. If two are happening, maybe a coincidence, but if three or more are happening, I would call that a pattern. And I think that's worth reevaluating your company. And I don't mean to say it's all about pay either. We've talked about pay, so that's, I'm giving you some very pay-related things, but a toxic company to me is one that uses its people rather than allowing their people to partner in conversations. Based on that, a lot of people would say, my company's toxic. But oftentimes people will say, I'm, I have a toxic company. I've asked for a raise or I've talked to my manager about burnout and they won't do anything. But when I really dissect what they've said and not said, it sounds something like, I'm not going to work late tonight because I've already got other plans. Is there somebody else on the team that you could tap because I'm starting to feel burned out? That is not a conversation that determines whether or not you should stay at that company or not. Okay, so that, I mean, that is a very common scenario where, especially in the last few years, if someone leaves the company, instead of the company hiring for a new person, Mm -hmm. they just have the existing employees absorb that role. Mm -hmm. And that leads to people being overworked and eventually feeling burnt out. Imagine that you are that person. You are feeling overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. You're feeling burnt out. You're working late nights. Your boss is putting way more on your plate than you can handle. Yes. How do you approach that conversation? I'll be your boss. (laughs) Okay. I teach people to use this model and it's what I expected, what I observed. So you've got to identify what the gap is. And the gap is, it's not emotional. It's just facts. Then going into consequences to me, to you, to others. And then lastly, three magic questions. So let me show you what this would look like. Okay. When you hired me, we talked about 
working overtime some of the time, but it would be the exception rather than the rule. And what I've noticed is that it's happening a lot more frequently lately. For example, out of the last 20 days, I've worked overtime 15 times that month. And it feels like it's more of a pattern than it is an exception. Now I'm gonna to move to consequences. And the consequences are really to me, to you, or to others, or all three. One of the consequences of working this many late days is that I'm starting to feel burned out and I don't think I'm doing my best work. And one of the consequences to you and to me together is that when I see you coming, I know you're gonna ask me to do extra work and I don't like feeling like I want to escape that because I wanna be a good partner to you. So now that I've expressed that, I move into the magic question. And these are so important. Listen to the way I ask the question because you don't want the other person to feel backed into a corner at all. Is that what you intended? Or you could say, I just want to know, do you see it any differently? Or the third question would be, is there something going on that I don't understand that would help me here? Because they may say, yeah, we have an acquisition coming. I'm trying to, I just need help for a temporary piece of time. When you ask one of those magic questions, it allows you to continue the conversation. What most people do is they back their manager into a corner, assuming that the manager is trying to do them wrong and you lose the whole opportunity for some richness. But when you say, is that what you intended? The manager can still respond back. One of the reasons I'm so passionate about burnout is because I myself have experienced it. And something I wish I would have tried before I quit my law firm was to have those conversations. But I'll be truthful with you, having even that conversation where we follow the, what are the consequences and the magic question would have been a little scary for me to have. Is there more of a an easier approach to have that conversation that you would recommend? Well, for burnout alone, yes. Here, here's something, it was taught to me by one of my people. So I'm telling you, I was a bad manager for a while. <laughs> I had somebody come to me and they said, we need to have a discussion around the prioritization. You continue to give me lots and lots of work and I appreciate your confidence in me. So he created safety to start, assuming good intent. Then he said, here's what I've done. I've bucketed the top priorities the second tier priorities and the third priorities here. And I want you to take a look at them. If I try to do everything you've given me, we will fail. We will look bad. But if I can make sure that the most important things, the things that are most visible that help us look good, I, I knock it out of the park, then I think we're gonna be better off as a whole. Can you help me make sure that this is the right prioritization? And are you comfortable that these ones on the bottom are things that they would be the first things to go if I had to cut. I'm going to try and do everything I can. He would have this conversation with me every single week. And it's realignment. It's aligning with your manager what a win looks like. And that conversation, I think, is a lot easier to have mm -hmm. and should be, I think, on everybody's list to be having with their manager. There was a period of time I was working like 60-hour work weeks, and my husband was getting so frustrated with me. He'd say, surely every executive is not there this late at night every night. And I'm like, yeah, they're not, but I just have so much to do and I'm fighting for relevancy all the time. And he said, you're doing something wrong then because everybody else isn't there. And there was a guy I called the golden boy. I really did call him golden boy. And 
he just seemed to get all the raises and all the promotions and he had time for his family and he was playing with the team and doing fun things. And when, once I started to not look at him as somebody who was playing politics, but somebody who was really cued into what was the most important prioritized work to do and making sure that got over the finish line, I realized that I was doing work that was not value added. And a lot of people think if they just work hard, they'll get promoted, but it is not enough to work hard. You have to be a hard worker, but you also have to prioritize the right work, the work that the company cares about. And I think to add to that, you have to be a hard worker, you have to prioritize the right things, and you have to be very vocal about what you are accomplishing. Because yes. I tended to be in my in my career, I tend to be the person who works silently and gets things done silently. Mm -hmm. But the people within the companies that are rewarded are the ones who are more, not boastful, but making it very well known what they are accomplishing for the company. Those are the people that work within the office politics system, right? I smile because I made the same mistake. And I talk about this in the book. I say the skill that got you here is not the skill that's going to keep you here. And you're not going to be rewarded for the same skill over and over. I did the same thing early in my career. I just kept it out of my manager's hair and got everything done. And they loved that. And my CEO at one point called me in as an executive. And he said, I just found out you were working on this project with IT and I didn't know you were working on it. And I said, oh yeah, I just didn't think I wanted to bother you with it. And he looked at me and he said, if I had known you had that skill set, there are so many other things I would have asked you to help me with. Part of my job is to be able to help you succeed as well. And so your ability to manage up, I need you to reframe it. It's not about personal PR as much as it is about making sure I know what you're working on so that we can maximize the skill sets you have to offer and you can be exposed to things that will help you grow faster. One of the key things that you said there was managing up. Talk about what it means to manage up. What does that phrase mean? Managing up to me is making sure that your peers, so for me it was the executive team, is aware of what you're doing and that those above you, so for me it would be the CEO, that they're aware of the work that's being done and some of the initiatives that you're working on. And it's incredibly important that they know. In part, it's because as you rise in a company, your job is not just your silo, your department. Once you hit about, I call it stage three of your career, you shift into this world of interdependence where your ability to get promoted has a lot to do with the relationships you're building across different departments. Isn't that a cruel twist of irony? Yeah. You're rewarded in stage two for independence and just doing it alone. And then all of a sudden, er, you have to move to interdependence and you can't have all the answers anymore. So that's in part why you have to manage up because other people have information you need. The other reason is you're doing complex projects that cross over and those tentacles go into other departments. And there's nothing worse, I've made this mistake, than managing a project and not realizing it touches over here. And when you're done, the project is already dead because they can't use it. It didn't meet their needs over there. So it's really important that you manage up uh, for that reason as well. Your ability to move up in a company has so much to do with how others view your capabilities. When you were working in HR, you obviously got to see the trajectory of different people and how some people continually got promotions and raises and how others did not. Besides their ability to manage up, what were the most common traits you saw amongst those who were able to constantly get promotions and raises? 
All right, I wanna give you some, I'm gonna go backwards to go forwards. I am obsessed with data and it was driving me crazy. We would hire people and then the people we thought were great fits, we were letting go. And I was trying to solve this. So I was looking at all the data of why people were fired and could never correlate why. And then a few years later, I was looking at top performers. Why were they succeeding? And all of a sudden the lights went on. By stage and career, the same skill sets that got somebody fired were the exact same skill sets that top performers had that kept them in the seat by stage. Now, I don't know, that just blew my mind. And so that's when I started the five stages of career growth because you really don't have to guess what skill set you're going to need next to be prepared. There's two that I would say are the big ones. Number two, stage two of your career, it's the ability to get outcomes and results by yourself without somebody telling you each step to take. That's the gateway to every other promotion you'll get. If you can't do that, you're just gonna stay stuck. So that's number one. But the, the second one that acts as a fatal flaw to people if they can't get it right is this getting comfortable with conflict. People seemed to believe that the absence of conflict would help them in their career mm. rather than the other way around. And what I found is that the higher you go, the more you have to use this skill. When you hit a stage four, which is a director, your whole job is prioritizing and getting prioritized among the, all of the different things the company has. Not only prioritization, but you're fighting for resources over and over again. And it's not just one time a year. Somebody inevitably doesn't hit their mark and you have to reprioritize again. And so if you are not able to get comfortable with talking about things that have conflict, it really will act as a fatal flaw in your career and stall you out completely. What should people know about office politics that you think most people are getting wrong? I think we hate them. We love to hate them. That's the thing we get wrong. I think the lie is that office politics are the enemy, and I don't see it that way. Office politics are a fingerprint to how work gets across the finish line and how a company values it. And that requires a tough reframe for a lot of people. But when you think about politics, for me, it's what does the company reward? And there's five elements to that. The first one is how fast does a company go versus slow? So fast, meaning you can make mistakes along the way. That's fine with this, but we have to go fast at all costs. And there's a reason to do that for some companies. And other companies will say, no, I want to be really methodical. Healthcare, for example, we can't make mistakes here. And when you start to understand these five elements of politics and where your company fits in, I think you make adjustments to your style. And politics are available to everybody. That's the one thing every employee has access to see and read politics of a company. So it's a secret weapon that people just don't use very often. What people will do is say, I didn't get ahead because of politics, rather than stepping back and saying, what is it teaching me about what the company values right now? Obviously, we all want the dream job, but to get the job, first, there's a little piece of paper called your resume. Mm, yes. What do you think people get wrong when it comes to resumes? This is so simple for me. What people get wrong is they put a job description on the resume. Your job in a resume is not to convey the job description as much as it is to make them believe you can do the thing you say you can do. And that would suggest that on your resume, you need to make sure you are crystal clear on the outcomes you've produced. The top third of the resume, to me, is the most important. You'll, if you don't get through the top third, you're not getting an interview. 
And a lot of people put a lot of buzzwords at the top. They'll do like the biggest conglomeration of buzzwords that mean nothing ever. So what I tell people to do is to make sure they first have the elevator pitch to the elevator pitch, the highest level elevator pitch, and have three key words that they know how to do that really are relevant to that job. Maybe it's operational efficiencies, project management, something else. And then when you're doing the paragraph, that first paragraph, be really mindful to say, this is the kind of company that would hire me. I'm somebody that you would hire if, and finish the sentence. That's really powerful. And then I like to put, instead of this whole list of skills, that, yeah, you may have them, but you may not. I like to see professional highlights listed and outcomes because that's what gives you confidence. And if you can put that at the top third of your resume, you've beat 90% of the resumes that I see that simply put buzzwords that may or may not mean anything. Is it true that most HR departments are now using a computer to first scan through resumes and get rid of the ones that yes. aren't even up? They've been doing that for decades. I'm, I'm old enough that I've seen it for decades, <laughs> but I also have implemented the systems. They're called applicant tracking systems that the resumes go through. And here's what's so interesting about those. They pick up keywords from the job description and make matches. And a lot of people don't know this. And you're ranked based on the keyword matches. So if you have the right experience, but you've used the wrong words, you may not even show up. So I tell people, put your resume through a word cloud generator. If you don't know what that is, Google it. It's free. It just is a word picture, and it pulls out the words that you use most frequently. And then put the job description through it. And make these slight adjustments and tweaks to your resume so you have a higher likelihood that it will get ranked higher with the same experience. And a lot of people just don't understand that that's how an applicant tracking system works. What other tips do you have for creating a resume that stands out? One of the more common mistakes I see is that people simply regurgitate a job description. And I think there's an opportunity on every bullet point on your resume to turn it into an outcome. So if you say, I'm responsible for increasing social media presence, how do you know you did it well? How was it when you came and how is it now? And you might be able to turn that into a couple of different bullets. And to make it the most powerful, you start with the outcome and then say how you did it. But a lot of people won't do that. And so it just feels like you're looking at clones for every resume that you look at. But when I have somebody that actually can identify outcomes, and a few people I think are smart enough, if they have room on the resume, they put what I call a LinkedIn-style recommendation. And so instead of an, uh, somebody that they have to call to get a recommendation, it will be two sentences saying, Janine got me more coverage, PR coverage, than any other person that I've ever had on the team. Something like that becomes a proof point, again, to make them believe that what you can do is what you can do. And nobody is going to take time to call your references unless you're last person standing or one of the last people standing, but it could be on the front end the thing that gets you differentiated between 10 other resumes that look just alike. Mm -hmm. So I like that idea a lot. We have a closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but today is all about Tessa. So what do you want people to walk away from this podcast being able to say, Tessa White taught me this? I would like people to know that I taught them that their halfway conversations are responsible for them not getting some of the results that they expect out of the workplace and that they have a part 
in why it feels crappy. And I'm not trying to blame people or say they're bad. I'm just saying that your ability to communicate will help you get what you need. And you can't expect everyone else to communicate well, but you also not do it well. Thank you so much. Brilliant. (laughs) If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.